0: Welcome to this episode of Rewired Podcast. I'm Bailey. And I'm Kelly. And today we're doing an episode of Marx versus Dickens because both of them talk a lot about poverty but of course Dickens is a literature person and Marx is a sociological criminology kind of person. Yeah. So Kel, why don't you tell us a little bit about Dickensian poverty?
1: Okay. Um, Well, so first of all, um, we know we've talked several times in this podcast, and it's pretty well accepted by fans of The Wire that there's a lot of comparisons between the series and Dickensian novels, um, partially because it focuses so much on the granular day-to-day life of a wide strata of socio-economic classes. Mm -hmm. So... The term Dickensian poverty is something that uh, has become popular in the last 150 years um, based on the way that he portrayed poverty in his novels. So uh, I'll just read um, a line here from an article on BBC, which says that Dickensian has now become the easiest word to describe an unacceptable level of poverty. And... A line from the Paris Review says, Popular use of Dickensian conjures, whether we like it or not, shivering orphans, cloying sentimentality, fortuitous coincidence, and virtue rewarded. Well, that's true.
0: Every time I think about Dickensian, that's definitely what I think of. And I think even in season five, when... At the Baltimore Sun, they're being pushed for these Dickensian stories.
1: That really is what they're looking for. Right, exactly. When we talk about, you know, shivering orphans, that, of course, makes us think about Templeton's fake story of, I think his name was RJ or something like yeah. that, Yeah, the the orphan in the wheelchair who wants to go to the Orioles game.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, and it is Gus who is kind of poking at this story to get more information. But really, if... I mean, that is Dickensian personified. yes, so I guess the question is, since we're talking about we're we're going to talk about Marxist criminology, how did Dickens feel about
1: poverty and crime? So the way that Dickens portrayed um poverty was that there was this idea of the working poor, uh, which he gave a lot of sympathy to the working poor. Um, what he may have considered the deserving poor. So we could say that, um, I'll quote from an article here that was on UCSC that says, generally speaking, Dickens believed and strongly insisted in his work that crime was a result of poverty and its corollary ignorance. But despite his sympathetic treatment of characters like Magwitch in Great Expectations, there is a barely controlled anxiety in many of his works about an unredeemable evil in some poor people. Okay. So I guess the argument there is that poverty leads to things like crimes of subsistence. And I think that we see that with characters like Artful Dodger um, mm-hmm. and pickpocketing. Yeah. But then the anxiety, which is mentioned in that quote that I just read, is that some crime that arises in poverty stricken areas is because of an intrinsic evil. And that's the anxiety. Okay.
0: So if we were going to then think about Dickensian characters as related to crime in The Wire, certainly when I think of the Artful Dodger, the easy analysis is to Bubbles.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the Artful Dodger was this uh, really wily pickpocket who um, was a tutor in some ways to Oliver Twist. Mm -hmm. And I think Bubbles demonstrates... Those same qualities, you know, he teaches Johnny the game. He teaches Sherrod the game. And uh, these are, as we said, crimes of subsistence. Bubbles is just looking to steal things that he can then sell, like scrap metal.
0: Mm -hmm. And
1: Bubbles certainly doesn't have an inherent
0: evil. He's almost the opposite of that. He has an inherent good that almost makes him verging on too gentle for what he does. Yeah. Um, so then the, the other question, I mean, we also see this kind of in Dookie, right? Dookie ends up being forced to a place of crimes of subsistence.
1: Yeah, that's true. And he becomes the new Bubbles, I think. We've talked about that before. And yeah, right at the end of, I guess it's toward the end of season five, he is now the one stealing the scrap metal.
0: Yes. Um, but again, without an inherent evil. So then we bring ourselves to Nick and Ziggy and, uh, I don't think we're, out of line to promote that will be on uh, The Wire Stripped, which is another podcast on The Wire, and that will happen this week. Um, but we talked a lot about Ziggy, and specifically you and I are at odds over whether or not Ziggy has an inherent evil. Right. And I sort of think he does. And I think that he doesn't. So, you know, what might Dickens say about Ziggy or Nick? Do you think that he would have the same... Um, sort of generosity towards those two? Or or are they not Dickensian of poverty?
1: Well, I think that they are because they are the, as Dickens said, the working poor, the deserving poor. They Mm -hmm. want to be working, making money, um, but they're not getting the hours. And so I see their crimes again as these crimes of subsistence. Whereas if we look at somebody like, I'm um, trying to think of a good example here. Maybe Clay Davis? No, I was going to no. say Marlowe. Okay, yeah, Marlowe. Marlowe's crimes, yes, it's to make money, but it's not really as much about subsistence because, you know, he has a cruelty streak. Yeah, definitely. So who are some other sort of key uh,
0: characters in Dickens' stories? Like, he uses a few archetypes, particularly
1: around crime. Right. So, one of the other archetypes, just to stay with Oliver Twist, is the crime lord, who is Fagin, mm. and he's the one who oversees the entire pack of children that are stealing from people, the pickpocket children. hmm And so, crime lords in the wire are... I would say Avon, obviously. Yep. Marlow. Marlow. Uh, the Greeks yeah I
0: think
1: sorry Sorry. (laughs) I think the best comparison would be Avon um especially because of the way that Avon's crime organization and uh the way it operates is to bring children up into it from the age of really really young until they are you know of grown age so you know we see the way that Bodhi gets promoted up through the system. And when we first meet Bodhi, he's only 16. Mm-hmm. Um, and when D'Angelo, uh, you know, is giving trouble to Wallace, who I think is even younger. I think he might be 14 when we meet him. He says, you know, if he doesn't get the money right, he's going to be down at the corner sucking on a bottle yelling 5-0. Mm-hmm. So it, it goes to show that the... The way the crime lord is operating in this case is to to almost um, groom the children into the culture of crime, and I right. think that that is also what we see in Oliver Twist. Definitely. Uh, he also talks
0: about different prisoners, too. There's a few prisoners in Dickens' stories. Um, and, of course, our sort of prison archetype characters in The Wire would be Weebae and Cuddy. Weebae as sort of just going in and facing this life of crime, but also Cuddy coming out and reintegrating into society and all of the troubles that they face. Right. So, uh, some of the related Dickens characters would be Abel Magwitch, who, who we mentioned from Great Expectation, and uh, Little Dorrit, um, which I guess there's a character named Rigaud. I haven't read those stories. So I don't <laughs> know Didn't anything care. about them. I haven't them. read them
1: either, so I can't really comment on them.
0: <laughs> so, so, anyway, that kind of is there anything else to add on Dickens? I don't think so. Okay. So,. Now, of course, the, what we're really talking about is the theory of Dickens versus Marx. So when we think about Marx criminology, we talked about Dickens as seeing an inherent evil in some poor people or an irredeemable evil in some poor people. Marx definitely would disagree with that quite wholeheartedly um, because Marx emerged at a period of time, just a very quick backgrounder on criminological theory, Um, up until sort of Marx and to some extent Foucault, who we talked about in our previous episode, there really was this sort of positivist crime theory. And it was very focused on the individual as the criminal and really an inherent uh, disobedience or deviance in that person. And nobody was really talking about the sociological conditions that could cause crime. So then Marx came along and said crime is really about power and uh, and in some ways the economic capitalist society. Because for folks who don't know, Marx is the guy that wrote Communist Communist Manifesto. (laughs) Yeah, the Communist Manifesto with that Engels character as well. So uh, that's really what. Marx saw as terms of being uh, criminological. So, so if you go to the Wikipedia page on Marxist criminology, what you'll see is that the hypothesis that economic power is translated into political power substantially accounts for the general disempowerment of the majority who live in the modern state and the limitations of political discourse. So Marx really is not focused on the individual at all. It is very much on society. So the question is, was David Simon a Marxist? When we look at the wire, are we thinking about crime as being caused by these um, sociological situations? Well, I think
1: going back to all the people that we just listed off, um, probably I would say yes. I mean, especially when we think about season two and the stevedores and their their means of production uh, which is uh, a major pillar for Marx their means of production is starting to be limited and that means that they have to turn to crime
0: so marxist criminologists will basically also argue that actually crime is a social construct which is created by the ruling class so you know if we were all equal if we were in a communist society what would constitute crime in that society could be very different than what constitutes crime in this society. So they would certainly argue that white-collar crime actually isn't as policed as something like the crimes of subsistence that you were mentioning. Uh, And so the question is, is this true in the wire? And and what would Marx say about Baltimore's crime?
1: Um, I think that we do see white-collar crimes getting prosecuted or policed a lot less in the wire. Let's think about when uh, the district attorney doesn't want to indict all the politicians mm-hmm. um, because it's right before the midterm elections, and they're worried about how will that upset the balance of po- power or the possibility of reelection. Definitely, and part of it is really
0: it's a they're saying that policing the crimes of the poor are really a method of socio- social control. So. For those that don't conform, they will be punished, which is definitely something that we see reinforced in the wire over and over and over again.
1: Right. Like when, uh, I mean, Carver does this a lot. He says, if you don't get off the corners, I'll be back. I'll be, you know, you'll be up against the wall, all of this. And they're conditioning them to conform. This goes back to what we talked about with uh, punishment and how has that evolved over the years. Right, with Foucault's theory of crime and punishment and prisons, right? Yeah.
0: Definitely. Um, Well, and even, you know, for the the police, there is certainly even social control in that strata. Right. There is all this. It's all about the chain of command. Um, Bunk tells McNulty to watch his back with Daniels because he says he's a company man. You know, he's interested in making rank, climbing the ladder, getting up there. And so, again, it's all about this notion of social control. Um, So anyway, back to Mark's, what he might say about Baltimore's crime. There are definitely more um, policing around those who are living in poverty. Yes. And uh, who gets away in the wire. So who gets away with their crimes? Clay Davis. Mm -hmm. So again, a white collar crime. Yep. All right. So what else is interesting about thinking of social strata and poverty as related to crime, is the, you know, Stringer really trying to get out of that and and trying to, uh, like I guess, achieve another status through wealth.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting because Stringer never, at least not in my opinion, looks like he belongs to a lower socioeconomic class. Like he makes a point of dressing very sharply. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's taking business courses. So I, I don't want to say that any of that is performative, but he even before he reaches the level of legitimate businessman is, mm-hmm. you know, acting the part.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, so another way of saying this is that laws reflect the interests of the bourgeoisie. Which is also alluded to a lot through the wire. So one of the first things I can think of is when um, when there there's a major crime and they can't get the tech, the crime scene techs there because the lawn furniture has been stolen from
1: the mayor's house. Right, and the only crime scene tech has to go take fingerprints for the lawn furniture.
0: Yeah, exactly. Now, this also makes me think of another great scene uh, with Bunny Colvin. So uh, I will... Watch it, and then we'll analyze the scene, okay.
1: Sir, if she doesn't have the money on her, I, I don't know what I can do. To
0: you beat that woman enough?
1: I just want my money back. Excuse me, Mr. Gergen, I need a moment with my director of security. She the charges, I'm cuffing that motherfucker. Mr. Colvin, this is a delicate matter. Delicate shit. Mr. Gergen represents a national consortium of convention planners. And he's been a friend of the hotel. Mr. Colvin, Mr. Colvin. Now you took his cash, and he beat you good, huh? How much he beat you for? How much? <laughs> no, Mr. Colvin, I... What
0: the fuck is this? She steals my money, and you're gonna lock me up. Getting charged with assault. It'll I'm
1: be over. Want to charge her with the theft? I'll put the cuffs on her too. Uh, uh, you in a wagon, shit,
0: first. Mr. Colvin,
1: this is not acceptable. No, he's going in a wagon. Mr. Colvin, I have to insist. Thirty years a of police officer, I never took cuffs off a right charge. Ain't about to start now. You're not a police officer, Mr. Colvin.
0: So in this scene, um, you know, Bunny Colvin, being a cop through and through, wants to arrest the John. Who has assaulted this sex worker and the hotel manager won't let him.
1: Yeah, and it's because the the guest, the John, is, you know, a, an important client of the hotel. Exactly, which is a, a
0: huge, like, I would say a Marxist scene in a lot of ways. There's also, you know, every now and then Beatty sort of makes the point that those, those who are selling drugs uh, at the street level are actually much more indictable, much more police than those who are selling women who are making way more money and are at
1: higher levels of wealth. Right. So that goes back to, you know, the idea of the crime lord. The Greeks are um, kind of the the ones behind structuring this whole human trafficking scheme. And they are so far removed from the level of, you know, the day-to-day policing. Yeah, exactly.
0: Well, and there's also that, even that quote by um, the chief commissioner, when he finds out that they did a brothel raid, he even says, well, did you find a client list anywhere? Flush it down the toilet, because we can't be having that get out. Exactly. So again, it's about protecting the city's wealthy and policing their poor. So there's also Marx's theory of alienation. So again, Marx wasn't really a criminologist. He mostly talked about work. And Kelly, you've got a lot of thoughts on work and labor in the Wire, and how, especially around season two, it's talked about, which we talked about more in our Wire Stripped podcast. Um, but uh, one of the things that he theorizes is that there's also this the the notion of the working class. Um, job and that those are jobs that are often you know very task focused very little space for creativity um and that this is this sort of separates them from the rest of society
1: yeah um so i think we see um limited creativity or demeaning work a lot in the wire like let's think about that scene it's season one, and Wallace is talking about how the idea for the nuggets was the greatest thing ever, and that person must be so rich by now mm-hmm. and D'Angelo says no no he's still making you know a dollar twenty five an hour in the basement trying to think of how to make the fries taste better yeah and the the image of him being in the basement speaks to that inability to move upward mm-hmm. um, you know literally at the bottom. Um, because that is demeaning work, mm-hmm. and it's limiting work, and the the means of production are um, just not as flexible with that particular class of people. Definitely, and then that that's almost
0: echoed in a scene later on where he's teaching them to play chess, and he talks about the pawns, and really... You know, the pawns are there for that meaningless, demeaning work that is not creative. Well, and also, he specifically says, everybody stay who they is. Yeah, exactly. So, finally, there's this notion of enomi, which is a cause of crime. And the idea is that um, crime is caused because society provides a little moral guidance to criminals. And this is, of course, something that we see... You know, if we were to bring in race theory, there are all sorts of stereotypical notions about, for example, young black men without fathers growing up in low-income neighborhoods. Um, so we'll stay in our lane. <laughs> it's not really our lane to get into. Um, but certainly, the, this notion that there's little moral guidance to criminals is something. So, for example, in The Wire, this is reinforced with Dookie. Dookie has very little moral guidance, but when Neman is given the opportunity for moral guidance, he chooses a different path. That's right. What's interesting for both Dickens and The Wire, many of the criminals do have a strong moral code. However, it may not necessarily align with the bourgeoisie moral code.
1: Yeah, like Omar. Yeah. The game is the game. Yeah. And there's also, uh, across the various... Um, you know, factions of the game, whether it's east side or west side, there's this agreed upon Sunday truce, never on no Sunday. Yeah. Um, but what you said about Anomi and lacking moral guidance makes me think about... So, as we said, Dickens had these various archetypes of characters and their, uh, their crimes arise from either their ir- irredeemable evil or their, their poverty... So if we're thinking about the lack of moral guidance, it makes me think about people like Marlowe or mm-hmm. Chris Partlow, or even Snoop for that matter, the people that I would almost classify as um like psychopaths mm-hmm. and the fact that they are completely amoral. Um so Marlowe, for instance, there's a scene where his one of his soldiers is talking about how he doesn't have the money. And Marlo says, well, pay your people less. And the guy says, well, I can't do that. They make what they make. And he says, then short yourself. And it's just, Mm -hmm. he doesn't have any kind of sense of owing anybody anything. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: Exactly. Or um, when the security guard
0: for the convenience store is there, you know, one could also argue that that's presented as demeaning work. He's not a quote-unquote real cop. You know, he even sort of, states that he feels demeaned in many ways, but Marlowe steals the lolly from I, the store. I hate that scene. I know you do. You hate it. I hate it. And this the the security guard
1: challenges Marlowe, and it ultimately leads to his death. Yeah, the security guard says, do you think I want to be here? Yeah. Or, you know, and he does feel demeaned, and there's nothing in Marlowe that feels any bad about anything. No, exactly. And that especially... You know, stealing lollipops that is not a crime of subsistence. That is no. a crime of disobedience. Ki- or I would call that the unredeemable evil. Like Milo was evil.
0: Yeah, it was an it was certainly an exertion of power.
1: Yeah, all he wants to do is demean that security guard. Further. That's the only purpose for stealing the lollipops. Definitely. So, I mean, back
0: to the notion of enemy, we definitely see that in Dixon, Dickens too, right? That shivering orphans, well, of course, they're lacking moral guidance, they don't have parents, because so often in society we put that pressure on the parents.
1: Well, and then what happens is that the crime lord steps in to provide the what would be moral guidance, but it's actually sort of immoral guidance a la Fagin or, mm-hmm. you know, somebody else who's um, teaching somebody, an immoral way of life. Yeah. So the question is,
0: do we think that Marx and Dickens would agree on their interpretations of the wire? Like, would they interpret the wire in the same way? What do you think?
1: Well, I think that what we can all agree on is that poverty gives rise to certain types of crime. Mm-hmm. I think that's true with either a Marxist analysis or a Dickensian analysis.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: but that there are, there
0: are perhaps those who, in the positive, positivist theory of criminology, do have an irredeemable evil within them.
1: Marlowe. Marlowe.
0: Um, I think the other interesting thing is that Marx might argue that the reason that the Barksdale organization fell, whereas the Greeks organization continued was because the bourgeoisie benefited from the Greeks criminal actions, whereas they sought to suppress the actions of Barksdale and Bell.
1: Yeah. Um, we see the bourgeoisie benefiting obviously from the Greeks running the brothels. That's their entertainment and, Mm -hmm. uh, not benefiting from the drug trade. Exactly.
0: Um, so, interestingly, there was an article um, where David Simon was asked, <laughs> Are you a Marxist? Uh, and he says, No. Um, he's gone on the record and clarified that he is not a follower of Marxist theology or the- ideology, I guess. Um, but I think that you could definitely interpret The Wire through a Marx lens, a Marxist lens. I think so too. All right. Well, we'll see you next time. Way Way down down in the hole. hole.